girl came home from college and she was really discouraged. She said, Dad, if it isn't one thing, it's another. I mean, as soon as I solve one problem, another one seems to pop up and take its place. And those problems, they just never seem to come to an end. I can't take it anymore. I'm tired of the struggle. Dad, I want to quit school. Well, the father didn't say anything. He simply stood up and he grabbed the daughter by the hand and he led her into the kitchen. He said, I, I want to show you something. Just watch this. Father pulled three, pan three pans out of the cabinet, filled each one with water, set all three pans on the stove, and then turned the burners on. As the water began to boil, the father grabbed some carrots, and he put the carrots in one of the pans. Then he grabbed an egg, and he put that in the other pan. And then he grabbed some coffee beans and put that in the last pan. He then turned around, and he sat down. He grabbed a magazine, and he began to read. He looked up at his daughter and said, just, just hang with me. Just wait. So the father just sat there for a while, letting the food boil. Well, the whole time this is going on, the daughter's thinking to herself, what's up with dad? Has he gone nuts? What in the world is he doing? And what has all this got to do with me and all the problems I'm having at college? A few moments later, the father sets the magazine aside. He stands back up. He comes to the stove. He turns the burners off. He pulls the carrots out and puts them on a plate. He pulls the egg out of the other pan and sets it in a bowl. And then he takes that last pan that had the coffee beans, and he now pours the coffee into a cup. He turns around, and he asks his daughter, what do you see? And the daughter says, well, I see some carrots and egg and, and some coffee. And Dad said, no, 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 take a closer look. What, what, what change has occurred here? What, what, what's now different about all three elements, all, all three of these items? So the daughter stands there and ponders things for a moment. She says, well, the carrots used to be hard, and now they become soft. And the egg that was once uh, so fragile has now become hard-boiled. And, and the coffee beans, they've completely dissolved, but now they've given me something nice to drink. And the father said, good, you're getting it. Yeah, that's a good observation. Now, do you understand the lesson behind all, all of this? And the daughter shrugged her shoulder and says, no, I, I don't think so. I, I'm not getting that. And the father said, well, let me explain. Notice how all three of these items, the carrots, the egg, and the coffee beans, they've all just gone through some adversity. I mean, suddenly all three found themselves in some hot water, and yet all three reacted to the heat in a different way. The carrots, they went in strong, but they came out weak. Here was something that was once solid and firm, but now it's become soft and mushy because of all the hot water it's been in. And the egg, here's something that was once so, so delicate, but now it's become hard because of all the heat that it's taken. But those coffee beans, they tell a different story. It wasn't the water that changed the beans. It was the beans, the coffee beans, that changed the water. And now that hot water has a whole new flavor to it. Do you get the point? Which of the three are you going to be like? It's true, isn't it? Life is just filled with problems. Sooner or later, we're all going to find ourselves in some hot water. But how will we react to the heat? Do we just cave into the circumstances, surrender our faith, come out of that trial? Uh, just with a weak and mushy heart, no longer have any sense of conviction about God, no longer have any sense of faith that he can bring us safely through that trial? Or do we let the heat make us mean and bitter and hard and callous and now we develop this rough exterior because of that trouble we've been through, we're now bound and determined, never again, never again will I allow anyone or anything to hurt me, never again will I let my guard down. Or instead of that, Instead of just giving up and giving in to the problems and letting the troubles crush you, and instead of letting all those problems just steal your, your, your hope and, and turn you into this, this cynical person where you think, oh, the world's just a rotten place to be and there's nothing good about it all. Instead of that, what if we could rise to the challenge and respond to those difficulties in a different way, in a better way, where even in the midst of the difficulties, 
we begin to release something good from within us, something good that God himself put there, so that even in the midst of the trials, we actually begin to change the world around us. Now, here's why I'm talking about this. We're going to learn two things from our scripture today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Number one, we're going to learn you will suffer. Can't avoid it. Sooner or later, you're going to get hurt, and when you get hurt, it's really going to sting. Because that's the kind of world in which we live. We live in a world that is sinful and broken, and it will affect us. But number two, we're going to learn that no matter how you suffer, whether it's something big or something small, no matter how you suffer, it will change you. But the question is this, will it change you in a good way, or will it change you in a bad way? You remember what the Bible says about this in the book of Proverbs? Take a look at this. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 25 it says, when the storm has passed, when the storm has finally swept by, look at the result. The wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Now, notice the first part of the psalm, or the, uh, the proverb. I'm sorry, we're to Proverbs, Proverbs. I'll get my mind straight here. The first part of this proverb is teaching both the wicked and the righteous will pass through storms. Not a matter of if, just a matter of when. Sooner or later, everybody in this life will have trouble. Maybe it's a divorce that just turns your world upside down, or maybe it's some kind of financial disaster that just wipes out your life savings, or, or, or maybe it's a loved one that you've always looked up to and admired. Here's a person you've always turned to and leaned on for wisdom and support, and yet one day they die, and they're not there for you anymore. Or maybe it's a child who's just breaking your heart because of all the bad choices they're making, and because you love them so dearly, you worry about them constantly. In fact, you worry so much, you can't even sleep at night. Sooner or later, there will be some kind of storm in your life and mine. And it doesn't just happen to adults. Kids go through trials too. Maybe it's the death of a pet. Maybe it's a bully at school who every day makes life difficult for them. Maybe it's the stress of knowing you've got to pass that test in chemistry class just to make a final grade at C. And yet your prospects for passing that test are looking, not looking very good because there's nothing about that subject, subject of chemistry that makes any sense to you at all. And you think, how am I going to pull this off? See, even every child will sooner or later encounter some kind of calamity. So it happens to everybody. Adults and children, the good, the bad, the righteous, the wicked, everybody's going to pass through a storm. But here's the hope. Notice the second part of the proverb. It says, when the storms have passed, and they will Here's the promise from God. When those storms have passed, the righteous will stand, but not the wicked. And the reason why the righteous will stand is because God helps the righteous. In the book of Proverbs, the wicked are those people who choose to leave the Lord out of their life. They're the people who choose to do life without God. And because they've chosen to live their life that way, that means they have no hope, no assurance when difficulties arrive that God is going to be there for them. You see, the righteous have something that the wicked don't. We have this promise from God. He will help us in the midst of our troubles. Well, that raises some questions. How exactly does God help us when we suffer? And how will that help change us? Well, I think we find some answers to those questions here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So today we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4. If you've got your Bibles, open them up and look at this with me. One of the things to keep in mind when you come to the book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul is the one writing this letter. And he's the one who planted this church there in the city of Corinth. The city is in the very southern part of ancient Greece. And by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul has now been working with this church for about seven years. But something else. At the moment that he begins to write this letter, the Apostle Paul himself has just come through one of the most painful experiences of his entire life. He'll talk about it in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. 
He doesn't give it a lot of detail, but he tells us that whatever this trial was, it was so terrifying and so intense, he thought he was going to die. So here's Paul. He has come through one of the most, he has just come through one of the most difficult moments of his entire life. And now here he is getting ready to write this difficult letter to one of the most difficult churches there is to work with. And notice how he starts off the letter, verse 3. Hey, I want to begin with a word of praise. In spite of all that he has been through, Paul says the first thing we got to do, we just got to pause for a moment. We, gotta take, we, we need to take a moment just to praise the Lord. And I want you to notice why he praises him. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, Father of mercy, and in the Greek it's written in the plural. Because what Paul's emphasizing, he, he's telling us, he's reminding us of who God is and what he's like. And when it says the father of mercies, that means when the mercy comes pouring out of the heart of God, it never comes out in a little way. It always comes out in a big way, in abundance. There's much to his mercy. And he's also emphasizing that when he shows that mercy to us, he never just does it in one way. He does it in many different ways, in multiple ways, with much and in multiple different ways. He is the father of mercies. He's also the God of all comfort. He knows how to comfort us in all our troubles. Get that? All troubles. Whether it's big or small, whether it's physical, financial, or spiritual, doesn't matter what the trouble is. He can comfort us in the midst of all trouble. So here's the key word. It's the word comfort. And in these five verses, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul will mention that word comfort ten different times. So here he is, he's putting the spotlight on the Lord. Here's the theme that he's trying to develop. I want you to think about, and I want you to come to appreciate the comfort that God can offer to us. So what's really key is for us to understand, what does he mean by that word comfort? You see, I think there's a difference between the way in which the Bible uses that word comfort and the way we tend to think about comfort. We tend to think of comfort as something that's soothing and calming, something that both mentally and physically helps us just to escape for a little bit. So we don't even have to think about the, the trouble. You know, drowning your sorrows in a bottle of whiskey until you become numb and you can't even feel the pain anymore. Or it's eating the comfort food, fried chicken, mashed potatoes, eating some apple pie. And while you're pigging out in your favorite food, you're sitting there watching a really good movie just so you can forget about life for a while. Or you think about that hotel, the hotel chain, the Comfort in. Here's a place that promises to have fresh linens and fluffy pillows and cable television and a good night's sleep on, after a hard day on the road. In other words, comfort is anything that makes us feel better, even if it just makes us feel better for a little while. Well, when the Bible uses the word comfort, it means something so much more. It's not just God coming along and patting us on the back and then handing us a toy or a piece of candy just so he can distract us. I mean, that toy, that piece of candy, it doesn't solve a single problem, but it does get our mind off things for a while. No! What God offers is something so much more. In the Bible, the word comfort means to strengthen, to fortify, to give you courage. So that instead of running away from the troubles, no, you press on in the midst of the trials and you find a way through. Think about it. And your knees buckle because of the bad news you receive. Or when you're so sad, you can't even get out of bed in the morning. You're so sad and depressed, you, you can't even make a simple decision. When you find yourself in a moment like that, what is it that you really need? Not something soothing and calming. No, you need something that will strengthen and fortify. Something that will give you the will and the power to stand up and, and move forward and make it through the day. That's the kind of comfort God offers. So the first contrast we see between the two different ways this word comfort's been used, we tend to think of comfort as something consoling. Somebody comes along to pat you on the back, hey, it's going to be all right, don't, don't cry anymore. 
that's nice. But the Bible's talking about something that enables you to move forward and continue to make progress. Here's the second contrast between the way the Bible uses the word comfort and the way we tend to think of it. Comfort is not something you find. You know, you find it by taking a long walk in the woods or you put a set of headphones on, uh, headphones on so that you can listen to your favorite song. Don't misunderstand me. Those are good things. Those kind of activities are soothing and helpful. Ooh, taking that long walk, listening to some really good music, that's, that's good. But again, in the Bible, when we talk about comfort, we're talking about something so much more than that. According to the Bible, comfort is not something you find. It's something that finds you. The word here is the word parakaleo, and the word literally means when someone else comes alongside. And the reason why that other person draws near is not only to help you, the reason why that person draws near is because of the sympathy they feel for you. And they have that sympathy in their heart because they've been through that same kind of trouble themselves. Let me illustrate. True story. There was a seven-year-old boy named Paul who's sitting in class one day, sitting there at his desk there at school. When an accident occurs, he wet his pants. Suddenly there's a puddle between his feet and the front of his pants just completely soaked. This had never happened to him before. Took him by surprise, and he begins to panic because he realizes when all the other kids in this classroom find out what has happened to me, they're going to begin to make fun of me, and I am going to be so embarrassed. His heart starts to pound. In his mind, he begins to pray, Dear God, this is an emergency. I need your help. I need your help right now. As Paul is praying, he looks up and he sees a teacher. She's coming down the aisle. She's coming right his way. He is about to be, be discovered. And he's thinking to himself, can this get any worse? That's when this little girl named Susie, sitting at the desk right next to Paul, the little girl who brought her goldfish bowl that day for show and tell, just before the teacher makes it to Paul's desk, Susie stands up with that goldfish bowl in her hand. She trips and dumps the water all over Paul. Now he's completely drenched with water, water all around his desk. And now Paul, instead of becoming an object of ridicule, he now becomes an object of sympathy. Teacher immediately calls for a janitor to come in and clean up the mess. And then the teacher takes Paul by the hand and leads him down to the gym where he can change clothes and put on some gym shorts for a while while his own pants are drying out. And all day long, Paul keeps thinking about that moment, what happened there in the class. And he begins to put two and two together. So at the end of the day, all the kids are waiting to get on the bus so they can head home. And Paul comes over to Susie and said, that wasn't an accident, was it? I mean, that goldfish bowl and dumping that water on me, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And little Susie smiled and said, yeah, I did. <laughs> and Paul asked, why? Why would you do that? Why would you want to help me? And Susie said, because I wet my pants once. And I know how embarrassing that can be. Now, that's just a small example of this very big truth that the Bible's talking about here. Notice what it says, verse 4. It says, the God, God is the one who can comfort us in all our troubles so that, so that we can comfort those in any trouble that they're having with the comfort, with the strength and the fortification, with the courage that we ourselves have received from God. The people who provide the best comfort are the people who have suffered themselves. And that's especially true of Jesus. Think about this. Think about how he suffered. I mean, he could have stayed in heaven. He could have avoided all the tough situations and all the difficult people that you meet here in this world, but he didn't. He willingly laid aside the glory, and he stepped right into the middle of our mess, and he became what the prophet Isaiah says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
born in poverty, born in a manger, born to a set of parents who could barely make ends meet. You think how frequently, with great compassion, he would teach the crowds and he would feed the crowds, even though it was those very crowds of people who were constantly interrupting his plans and making life frustrating for him, causing Jesus to take one detour after another. And yet he continued to care for him in a very compassionate way. You think of how he served his own friends, even when they misunderstood, even when they criticized, even when they deserted him. He continued to serve them. You think about how not once did he ever back down from a challenge. He always did what God wanted him to do, even when his own family didn't understand, even when his own family didn't approve. And you think about the fact that though Jesus never did anything wrong, there were other people who were constantly opposing him, resisting him, mocking him. And then you get to the end of his ministry and you watch as he's beaten up and he's spit on and stripped naked and put up on a cross so now everybody can laugh and ridicule. And yet the suffering that he went through there on the cross was much more than just that physical ordeal. It was the spiritual torture because at that moment God the Father begins to pour out all his judgment on our sin. Our sin that has now been laid on the shoulders of Jesus. Again and again throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul will remind us we serve a Savior who has suffered immensely but it's because of those sufferings he knows better than anybody else exactly how to comfort us in all our trials have you ever noticed how jesus always had an eye for those who are hurting he always had this special sympathy for those who are in trouble you know one day jesus is responding to an emergency it's urgent that he get to this home where a 12 year old girl is dying and yet while he's on his way there's another lady who's having trouble too She's been bleeding for the past 12 years. She quietly slips through the crowds. Nobody else even knows that she's there. She gently reaches out just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and immediately he feels that touch. I mean, it was just the slightest of touches, but immediately he feels it. Even though at that moment he's surrounded by all kinds of people, all these men and women pushing and shoving to get close to him, but he felt that touch, and he stops, and he pays attention to her. He pays attention to the one that everybody else is ignoring. Or you think about John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She comes in the middle of the day when it's too hot to draw water. But she comes at that moment of the day because she knows nobody else will be there. And the reason why she comes at that moment is because she knows nobody else wants to be around her. She's an outcast. She's been ostracized. This lady can't do anything right. She's already been married five different times, and none of those relationships have worked. This lady is hopeless. Jesus didn't think so. He stopped at that very well, at that very moment, just so he could talk to her. Or you think about blind Bartimaeus, the beggar sitting on the side of the road, sitting there outside the city of Jericho. He shouts and he screams for help, and yet the crowds just keep passing on by. Everybody else dismisses him. Everybody else ignores him, except Jesus. He stops and he listens to his cry for mercy. There was nobody better at noticing those who are hurting than Jesus. Why? Because when you yourself suffer, it changes you. When you yourself suffer, it brings a whole new awareness to your life. You begin to pick up on things that normally you would have missed. You begin to pay attention to things that normally you would have ignored. Do you remember what the Bible says about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2? Because he himself suffered, he's able to help those who suffer. When I was in elementary school, my parents subscribed to a magazine for me. They knew how I loved to watch sports. And so they subscribed to this magazine called Sports Illustrated. Every Monday after school, I'd race home. I'd race to the mailbox to get the latest copy. 
Well, one of the men who wrote for that magazine was a reporter by the name of Rick Riley. And one day he wrote this essay. He told this story about a boxer that I'd never heard of before, a man named Billy Misk. This is way back in the year 1918. Billy was fighting in the heavyweight division when he suffered a knockout blow. And the knockout came not from another boxer. The knockout came from his doctor. The doctor told him, Billy, you've got Bright's disease. Your kidneys have been severely damaged. You've got to hang up the gloves. You've got to stop fighting. You don't have much longer to live. You're not even going to make it to the age of 30. But Billy didn't stop boxing. He couldn't. He'd made so many bad business deals. These shady characters had taken advantage of his kind heart, and now Billy was deeply in debt, and, and Billy had a family to feed. And the only way he knew how to put bread in the table was with his fists. So from 1918 to 1923, when he shouldn't have been fighting at all, from 1918 to 1923, Billy fought 30 more times. And when Billy fought, he didn't fight marshmallows. <laughs> one of the men he took on was the legendary Jack Dempsey, one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. But by 1923, Billy Misk looked more like a scarecrow than a human being. This disease had taken such a toll on his body. And now, even his own manager wouldn't schedule any more fights. I can't, Billy. It's going to kill you. Billy knew that. Billy knew there in the end of 1923, he didn't have much longer to live. He realized the next Christmas he spent with his family might be the last Christmas he spent with them. So he's thinking, I want to make that celebration something special. So he went to his manager one more time. He says, hey, one more fight, just one more. And sign me up with somebody good so I can make some good money out of this. And I promise I'll give you the fight of my life. I'll give you my very best. Sign me up one more time. Well, the manager was reluctant. Billy, in your condition, you could die in the ring. Billy said, I know that, but I'd rather die in the ring than in a rocking chair. Sign me up. And sign me up with somebody really good so I can make some money for my family. So the manager made the arrangements. He signed Billy up to fight a, a boxer by the name of Bill Brennan. At that time, he was one of the top 10 heavyweights in the world. So on the evening of November 7, 1923, Billy Miss stepped into the ring one last time. And it went like most people expect. It didn't last long. Just lasted four rounds. It was over. But Billy came home with a nice paycheck, $2,400, which in 1923, that was a lot of money. So a month and a half later, when his kids woke up on Christmas Day, there was a Christmas like they'd never experienced before. I mean, a whole wall just lined with presents there next to the Christmas tree. And his wife woke up to find a, a baby grand piano sitting in the living room. Everybody was so happy. And when Billy saw all the smiles on their faces, he, he thought to himself, hey, that last fight, it was worth it. So the day after Christmas, he calls his manager and asks him for a ride to the hospital. On New Year's Day, 1924, the kidneys failed. Billy died. Now, there's one more thing you need to know about Billy. That last fight he had, the reason why I only went four rounds is because Billy knocked out his opponent. You think to yourself, wow, how could that have happened? He was seriously underweight. He was deathly ill. He was so sick that night, he could barely stand up. Where did he find the strength to knock out his opponent? Because you never bet against a father. You never bet against a father who is determined to make the ultimate sacrifice for his children. The Apostle Paul says that's the kind of father we have. We have a heavenly father who made the ultimate sacrifice for us. For God so loved the world, he gave. And look at what he gave. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but instead might have and enjoy an everlasting life. 
because of the sacrifice he made for me, my life has forever been changed. Has God's grace made a difference for you? Have you discovered what the Apostle Paul did here in 2 Corinthians? That God really is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is the one who can comfort and strengthen us in all our troubles. Let's pray. God, there's no one like you. And we can't do life without you. We just can't. That's why we're here today. We want to confess our need for you and your mercy, your constant mercy, your mercies that are new and fresh every day. God, thank you for all that you've suffered and all the sacrifices that you've made to show your love for us. God, there's no one who cares for us the way you do. And again, that's why we're here today, God. We want to thank you. And we want to praise you for your amazing love. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.